Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I remember when I was a kid one time and I was visiting my cousins and we wanted to go riding bikes and I was probably, I don't know, eight or ten years old maybe. My cousin Brian had his bike, his sister, my cousin Terry, had her bike and and that was the only other bike there for me to ride and I was a little self-conscious about the idea of riding a girl's bike but not so self-conscious to keep me from going bike riding. And so I climbed on her bike and we went riding around this parking lot down below us. And there was a bigger kid there that was riding through the parking lot as well. And, and as I went by that kid, I noticed he was, he was looking at me kind of funny. And like I said, I was feeling a little bit self-conscious about riding a girl's bike to begin with. So I'm kind of looking back at him, giving him a look back. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me why he was looking at me funny as I ran smack into the side of the fireworks stand. I think he wasn't looking at me like, hey kid, why are you riding a girl's bike? I think he was looking at me like, oh, you're about to run into a fireworks stand. And, <laughs> and, so, and so I was right along, paying attention to other things, not looking where I was going, and smack right into the side of that thing. It was so embarrassing. I bent the handlebars forward. People that were buying fireworks and the people inside the stand came running out there to see what happened. And they saw this kid all smashed up against the side of it. And then they're looking to see if I'm okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Just let, let me go. Just straighten down my handlebars. And so I got my handlebars straightened and away I went. Well, you know, if you don't watch where you're going, these kind of things can happen. They're having trouble with those kind of things now with the texting and driving. You know, from what I understand before the days of pyrotechnology and GPS in the fields, farmers would plow their fields and they would get the plowing straight by picking a fence post to stare at at the other end while they're heading the other way. In construction, when I'm building houses, I do the same thing. When I'm nailing down a piece of, of sheeting to the floor or to the wall or a piece of sheetrock. I always start, if it's a floor, I put my foot on top of the, where the joist is and the sheet that's already nailed down. And I look at the other end where I can see the joist sticking out the other side and I nail across. That's how I make sure I nail in a straight line so all the nails get in the sheeting. If you're looking all over the place, then you're going to go all over the place. It's like when my dad taught me how to drive a trailer. I remember when I was 16, the first time I pulled a, a trailer with our, our boat behind it, we went driving down the road, and I'm watch, looking at the mirror to make sure the boat's all right. My dad says, get your eyes out of that mirror. He says, if you, if you drive down the road, he says, glance at it to make sure it's okay once in a while. He said, but that boat on that trailer is going to bounce around more than the car is. It's going to hit bumps and it's going to shift a little bit. He says, if you're watching that, you're going to be tempted to correct for it in your steering. He says, just keep your eyes forward and go straight. The boat's going to follow you. It's got nowhere else to go. That's the thing. If we get looking off in different directions, then we kind of go off course. We get off track. That's what the author of the book of Hebrews is telling the people here. They're kind of in their Christian life. They're getting close to derailing some of them. They're looking at other things. They're experiencing pressure from family and pressure from the community around them to go back to the old ways of Judaism, to go back to the temple and offer their sacrifices and, and to forget about this Savior, which is Jesus Christ. 
And because of the pressures that are being put on them, they're tempted. They're tempted to go back. They're tempted to wander off the path of following Christ. And he's writing to them and he's telling them, you can't do this. There's too much at stake. You need to focus. In fact, that's exactly as we look at the beginning of chapter 3. Notice what he says. He says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. That word consider means to, to look intently and consistently. To look with the idea of continuing to look. Probably the best way to say it is stay focused. Get your gaze set on Jesus Christ and keep your focus upon Him. If you keep that focus, you're going to continue to follow. You're going to continue on the path that you need to be on. And that's what that word consider means. It means to, to think about something with the intent of gaining a fuller knowledge, a more complete understanding of a subject. And that's what the writer is telling them that we need to do. He says we need to consider Jesus. Get our focus on Jesus. Make sure that we're thinking correctly about this. It has huge implications in our life. And it's exactly this that kept the heroes of the faith of old on track. You know what, as we look up into Hebrews chapter 11, we find in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11, it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Remember God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, that child would turn into a big family, big nation, and through that he would bless the people, and here, that's where we'd get our Savior. Well, Sarah was past the age. She was 90 years old when she conceived Isaac. She was able to conceive because she considered him faithful. It happened because she thought things through. She considered that he was faithful and would keep his promise. We find the same thing in verse 19. In verse 19 it says, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This is talking about Abraham. Remember, Abraham and Sarah had that child that was born past their age of childbearing. And when, I, when Isaac was about 12 years old, Abraham takes him on a journey to go offer a sacrifice to God. And unbeknownst to Isaac, he is the sacrifice to God. And Abraham for three days went to where God would tell him, thinking that he's going to go up there and offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God, as God had told him to do. On the way there, Isaac says, we got the fire, we got the wood, we're only missing the sacrifice. And Abraham answers Isaac, God himself will provide the sacrifice. They get up there, Abraham binds Isaac, he ties him up, he puts him on the altar that he builds, and he gets ready, takes the knife out, he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God tells him to stop. He says, now that I know that you'd obey me in anything, let him up, and there was a ram stuck in the thicket, and that was the sacrifice that God provided. What was going through Abraham's mind for three days? That's what this verse tells us. What was going through Abraham's mind was that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Notice that. He considered. In other words, Abraham thought about this. He had thought this through. If you're taking your own child to be sacrificed, I'd say that that's three days that that's the only thing on your mind. You're wrestling with that. You're going over and over this on your mind. God promised He was going to bless me. And He promised He'd bless me through Isaac. He promised that He would bless that my descendants would be as the sand on the seashore, the stars of heaven, and that all that would happen through Isaac. How can that happen if Isaac dies? Abraham and all of his considering and all of his thinking it through to get a better perspective, a more full understanding, he considered this. I'm going to sacrifice Isaac. God's going to raise him from the dead because that's the only way he could keep his promise. And there's no way God is going to break his promise. That's what he was thinking. And it says, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. 
And so Abraham thought all these things through and was able to help him to have a right perspective to follow through with what God was going to have him do. Why was Abraham able to do that? Why was Sarah able to conceive? Because she considered that God was faithful. Why was Abraham able to go up and offer Isaac as a sacrifice, though God pulled him short on it at the end? Because he considered that God was faithful. In Hebrews 11, chapter, or verse 26, it says he considered, this is talking about Moses now, and it's saying that Moses was living in the palace of Pharaoh. He had all of the, the education, he had the privileges, he had the rights, he had all the luxury. He was living lifestyles of the rich and famous in the palace of Pharaoh, and he left that to go out and suffer reproach with God's people who were slaves. And it says, how could he do that? How could he make that decision to leave the lap of luxury in the palace of Pharaoh in Egypt to go out and be suffering with God's people? It says that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know, Moses looked at all that he had in the palace, and he considered all that he would have in in God in the wilderness, and he said, I'm better off with God. I'm going there. He made a conscious decision that it is better to be with God in the wilderness than to be in the lap of luxury without Him. That's why he's able to make that decision. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, after going through all the examples of the heroes of faith of the Old Testament, he again brings us back to the same point that he does at the beginning of chapter 3. And he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or, or faint-hearted. And so the same thing that he does starting all the way back at chapter 3, and he says, look, we need to consider Jesus. We need to focus on Jesus. We need to think about Him. Think about this situation so that we get a more full understanding so we can make the best choice. Sarah made the best choice. Abraham made the best choice. Moses made the best choice. All the people of faith made the best choice by choosing to stand sometimes alone with God if need be rather than go with the ways of the world and the treasures that it had to offer. And that's exactly what he's telling those people at this point in the book of Hebrews. He's saying, look, no matter what pressures you're being put under, no matter what comforts you might think you get by turning back to your old way of life, he's saying, don't do it. If you think about it, if you consider it, you will find that you're always better to go with Jesus. No matter what you suffer, no matter what it costs you, you're better off going with Jesus. It's the same with us. No matter what pressures we get from the outside world, no matter what stigma they try to put onto, onto us as followers of Christ, we're always better to go with Jesus. We go the way of the world. We know where the world is heading. The world is heading down a bad path, down a spiral towards judgment and towards facing the wrath of God. Through Jesus Christ, we're delivered from the wrath of God and we have an eternal life, an eternal hope that is ahead of us. And that's what he's, if I want to put it this way, maybe hanging over their head. Look toward the end of the passage. He begins by talking to them as Christians, as brothers in Christ. In fact, back into chapter 2, he said Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We're family members with Him through faith in Him. When you get to the end of this passage, he says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. His house that he's talking about is the church. That's God's household. God's people. And he says we are His house if... Notice it's conditional. If we hold fast. In other words, he's telling these people that look, if you can wander away, if you can turn your back on Christ and say He's not the Messiah, He's not the Savior, go back to your old life and live the rest of your life without Him, you are not part of that household. Now what is he saying? That we become part of the household by being faithful to God? No, that's not what he's saying either. 
Because notice, he says, we are his household already, present tense, if we hold fast something that happens in the future. You see, there's two things. We often like to, to focus on our security in Christ. Can you lose your salvation? And the Bible answers very definitely that no, you cannot lose your salvation. That salvation was, was chosen for you before the foundations of the world. But there's two doctrines that go hand in hand that we often overlook. Because there's this, this doctrine of preservation. Am I preserved in my salvation? Am I secure in my salvation? Yes. But the other doctrine that kind of covers the other side of the coin is, is the perseverance of the saints. That by putting my faith in Jesus Christ, if it's a legitimate, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, a saving faith in Jesus Christ, I will persevere in that faith. Otherwise, a faith that does not persevere, a faith that does not remain faithful, what is that? That's, that's like an oxymoron, right? It, 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 if, if something does not remain faithful, it cannot be faith. It's the same word. And that's what it's dealing with is the nature of saving faith. He says we are part of the household if we hold firm. But there's a lot on the line here. He's telling these people, look, you're part of the household of Christ. You're, you're who he's not ashamed to call brothers. You're the ones that experience this heavenly calling, this salvation from God. But if that is true of you, then you will persevere. You will consider Jesus. You will focus on Jesus and you will get your life headed down the right path. And that is, that's what he's calling us to do. Now, as he calls us to do that, he calls us to consider three, three different aspects. The first aspect is his work. He calls us to consider his work. Because notice what he says. He says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. first one is the apostle. The apostle, well, the word apostle means sent one. Just like Jesus chose out 12 apostles to follow him, and then he would send them out to, into the world with the gospel message. An apostle is somebody that is sent with a message. Well, Jesus himself is an apostle because he was sent by the Father. Jesus over and over through the gospel pointed out the fact that Jesus was was sent by the Father and that He was obeying the Father and the things that He was teaching the disciples and His apostles were things that the Father told Him to teach and showed Him Himself. And so Jesus is our Apostle. But He says not only is He an Apostle, He's also our High Priest. And this, remember we started off, first word of chapter 3 is therefore. In other words, depend talking about what we've already been talking about back in chapters 1 and 2. Well, if you remember from last week, we were focused on how Jesus, through His death and resurrection for us, is our high priest. We saw how He was a faithful high priest, a merciful high priest, a sympathetic high priest, because He's been through temptation and He's been through suffering in this world like we go through. In fact, beyond what we go through. Through that, He provided for our sanctification, setting us apart unto God. He provided for our emancipation from the works of Satan as He set us free from under the bondage of Satan through death. And it talked about how He gave us propitiation, delivering us from out from under the wrath of God. And so Jesus is this great high priest that has accomplished so much on our behalf. And now He's saying, now, let's consider Him. Look at this great high priest. Both of those... Offices are representative offices, right? Well, the apostle represents God to the people. He's bringing a message from God to the people. The high priest goes the other direction. The high priest is representing the people to God. And so the last thing I'd point out about the work of Christ is the completeness of His work. He, he makes the full circle. He does it all. He comes to us from God with the, with the message from God and He returns to God from us offering the, the sacrifice of Himself on our behalf. And so He completely, 
He completely seals the deal on our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so there isn't an aspect of our salvation that He doesn't take care of. Well, not only do we see His work, but we also see His character. The main character quality that it uses within this passage is faithfulness. It says in verse 2 that He was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. You know, in the first two chapters, we talked about how Jesus is compared to prophets. He's compared to angels. Lofty comparisons, no doubt, but not when you put them alongside Jesus. And instead of Jesus is superior to the prophets, He's superior to angels. Now He's going to compare Him to Moses. And He's saying, look, Jesus, Jesus is faithful to all that God sent Him to do, just as Moses was faithful in all that God sent Him to do. Here's a really cool thing about it. You know, a lot of times when people compare themselves to one another, think about a political campaign. In a political campaign, you have these different candidates that come out and they tell you how great they are and how they're going to accomplish all these things on your behalf. But they say, oh, these are all the great things that I'm going to accomplish. And then what's the other part of the campaign that we experience? They compare themselves to the other candidate, right? And there should be a comparison because we are making a comparison with our vote. But they compare them to the other person and then they begin to show you all the faults of the other person. All the things that they've done in the past that were negative. Anything that they can drudge up out of their life. Uh, all their policies that they don't like. Any, any way that they can shoot that person down. And the idea is, since it is going to be a comparison, if you can shoot that person down, it makes me look better. It raises me up a notch. You know what? Any time that we feel that we have to tear somebody down a peg in order to make ourselves look better, we are in a foolish battle. And notice, there's none of that here. Moses had some faults. Right? We look in the Scripture, we see that Moses was supposed to go up and, and talk to the rock the second time. And he hit the rock again. Big enough mistake to keep him out of the promised land. Right? Moses killed the soldier uh, earlier on. Moses had his struggles. He had his strengths and his weaknesses like anybody. But in comparing Jesus to Moses, he never points out Moses' weaknesses. He doesn't need to. On Moses' best day, Jesus is far superior. The author doesn't need to attack Moses to make Jesus look better. Moses is part of Jesus. Moses is part of the household that Jesus is over. It says that Moses is faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house. Moses is faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful as a son. Jesus was faithful. He's faithful to us. He's faithful to God, representing God to us as an apostle. He's faithful to us as he represents us to God as our high priest. He is faithful. He is strong in his character. Now, when he compares them against Moses, he's comparing them to the cream of the crop as far as the Israelites would understand it. They looked up to Moses. They elevated Moses. In fact, in John chapter 9, verse 29, when they're considering Jesus, they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. In fact, the Word of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish people often referred to, even in the Bible, referred to it as the laws of Moses. And so Moses was held in very high esteem. And, and the writer is saying, look, Moses was great. He should be held up. He is awesome. He was faithful in what God had him do. But so is Jesus. Jesus is faithful. He's a, he's a person of character. So Jesus, as we look at his work, he's superior in his work. He's superior in his, in his character before us. And also he's superior in his position. His first example that he gives is as Jesus as a builder. He compares him to a builder. And he says, Moses was faithful in all God's house. And then as we get to verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful 
in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So you see, he's pointing to Moses, and he says, look, Moses is faithful in God's house, but he's, he's as we already mentioned, he's part of the house. He's a, a servant within the house. Jesus is faithful to all God's house over the house as the builder, as the son. And he says, you know what, the builder is always receives more glory than the house itself. You know, I see this. The word actually doesn't mean a structure, a building. The word oikos means like the household, the family that dwells within the building is what the word means. But I see this all the time in physical buildings when I deal with a, with a project. Right now we're just finishing up a, a bathroom remodel for a customer and we're close to the end of it. And Friday, I think it was, she was telling me about how much she's gonna, looking forward to enjoying this new bathroom and how um, she says you guys have just really done a nice job on it and she's praised us for it. You know, you recognize when you look at something like that, you usually look at you, what you think of as the, the craftsman that did it, the, the person that made it. If you look at a fine quilt at a, at, a, at a fair or on demonstration or something, and you look at it and you see more than I do when I look at quilts, um, well, you probably look at the stitching and all that kind of stuff, and you look at it and you say, wow, look at the, this person really did a great job. You magnify the builder, not the, not the quilt. The quilt is just fabric that's cut up into a bunch of little pieces, sewed back together in a fancy way. And it's just fabric, right? A house is just sticks and, and concrete and nails and fasteners and, and different products. It, it's, it's nothing in and of itself. It's the craftsman. And that's what he's pointing out. Jesus is the builder. Moses is just a part of the building. He's a good part of the building. He's a faithful part of the building. Jesus is supreme. He is the overall constructor of that building, of his house. In fact, he makes this little comment. He said, Moses' life, Moses' ministry, was of things to be spoken of later. You notice that down toward the end of that passage? In verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses' ministry not just accomplished the misery ministry that he had there, but his ministry projected what the ministry of Christ would be like. When Moses was delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, that was a type. That was a type of Christ. It was a prefiguring, of, uh, a copy, a shadow of what Christ would do for us. As Moses would come and deliver Israel out of Egypt, Christ would come and deliver us out of our sin. Moses prefigured Christ. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So even Moses, toward the end of his ministry, told the children of Israel, look, the God is going to send another prophet like me. So Moses prefigured Christ. We also see that in the New Testament and the preaching of the apostles. And they look back on that quote in Deuteronomy and they quote Moses. Acts chapter 3 is one example. This is Peter preaching after he healed the guy at the temple. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. 
And then also in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's message before they stone him, he says, he gives kind of a recount of the history of Israel. And he says, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you to be a ruler and a judge? Notice all the similarities between Moses and Christ down through this passage. First of all, Moses was rejected at first. Christ also would be rejected. It says, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So you see what Stephen is doing there is he's saying, look at Moses. He went to his people. He was rejected by his people as being their leader. Look at Moses. He did perform signs and wonders in bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them across the Red Sea. And for 40 years in the wilderness, he performed signs and wonders showing them God's leadership in that time. Look at Jesus. He performed all these signs and wonders. And what did Moses say right before he, his end of his ministry? He said, God's going to send you somebody else like me. And he's pointing out, look, this is the Christ. Moses is just a part of his household. Moses' life pre-shadowed. And when he get up to chapter 8, he's going to focus on that some more. But Moses' life, like many other things, like the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood, pre-shadowed the ministry of Christ. Part of Moses' faithfulness revealed to us a more full picture of what God was going to do for us through Jesus Christ. And that's why in John chapter 5, when Jesus would tell them, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In in their mind, they're looking at turning away from Christ because the temple's still there. Go back to the old temple and the sacrificial system. They're considering maybe turning away from Christ and going back to Moses. His point is, you can't go back to Moses. Moses was pointing to me. There is no Moses without me at this point. They could not turn back. Just like he's going to tell them later, there is no more sacrifice there. They're still offering sacrifice in the temple. But the purpose of that sacrifice was to point to Christ's sacrifice. So that sacrifice is over. Even though they're still performing it, You cannot turn back and go back to what was because what was pointed to what is and what is is the reality. Well, not only do we see him in his position as a builder, but he points to him as a son. Moses was the servant. The servant works within the house. Christ is the son. He's the rightful heir of everything over the house. And then he brings us right back to the end. We are his. We are part of that house if we hold fast. Moses was faithful in that house. Are we going to be faithful in that house? Remember back in Moses? Their forefathers rejected Moses. They constantly rebelled against Moses, rebelled against God. He's going to go on from here and say, are you going to be like those, like, our, like your forefathers were in turning away from God? Or are you going to hold to Him? Because if you're really part of Christ's household, you are going to hold. And you have to hold. Well, it's not, this, it's not any different than the same thing that he taught us in other places. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Notice that. You abide in my word. Not just begin in my word. Abide. You continue. That's the life of a believer. John chapter 6, verse 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It is the will of the Father that everybody that comes to Jesus for salvation, that Jesus will lose none of them. Nobody can pluck them out of His hand. 
And then we also see it in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. It's talking about false teachers within the church that had, had crept in and started teaching false doctrines. And the people are saying, how can they leave us and go out away from us and uh, turn to these other teachings? And this is John's response. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. These people that made a profession of faith in Christ and then don't hold to it, that walk away from it and don't come back, he says that is evidence that their faith was not genuine to begin with. He says if they were of us, if their faith was real, they would not have walked away. Because faith remains faithful. Consider Him. Consider Christ. To focus, to get that more complete understanding, we see that, that He is a, a superior Apostle and high priest of our faith. He represents God to us, us to God perfectly. That he is perfect in his character. He's faithful in what God has him to do. And he's perfect in his position as he's not just part of the building. He's the builder of the building. He's not just a servant within it. He's a son.